Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News. Joining me today, as always, our resident super nerd, Coach Trevor Connor. Today's episode. In this era of training data, one number reigns supreme for many athletes. FTP, we've all heard it. It's a badge of pride or maybe an obsession, and many cyclists pay coaches good money to improve it. But is FTP the only number we should be looking at, or even the most important one? Our energy systems can be divided into two key categories, aerobic and anaerobic. And both our total strength as an endurance athlete and our rider type are a function of the relative balance between these two systems. How they interact may tell us more about our FTP or threshold strength than a simple power number. For years, we have used VO2 max to measure the maximal rate of our aerobic system. But how do we measure the rate of our anaerobic system? Over the past two decades, renowned physiologist and coach Sebastian Weber has developed the anaerobic equivalent of VO2 max, which he calls VLA max, or the maximal rate of lactate production. Today, we take a close look at this sometimes complicated concept, but be patient as there are several points that we address at the later half of the show that could have a significant impact on how you train and how quickly you progress. So in today's episode, we first define FTP and why it may not be the be-all end-all of training. If you have an FTP of 350 watts, you should be proud. But the more important consideration, particularly for how you train and where you may excel as a rider, is how you produce those 350 watts. Next, we'll define VO2 max and VLA max and why the crossover point of lactate production and lactate clearance is so important. We'll address the issues with lab testing. Yes, it's inconvenient, it disrupts training, and it hurts. We'll also explain why finding ways to get the same information out on the road is important to an athlete's training. Next, we'll talk about how to determine VLA max since it can't be measured as easily as VO2 max. Then we get to the crux, how to apply the concepts of VLA max and VO2 max to training. Sebastian makes the very important point that developing one system generally comes at the cost of the other. Finally, we address how this has different implications depending on if you are, for example, a time trialist or a sprinter. Sebastian gives great advice to both styles of riders on how to direct their training. Our primary guest today is the head physiologist and scientific brain behind Inside, Sebastian Weber. Sebastian has also coached some of the best riders in the world, including Tony Martin, Andre Greipel, and Peter Sagan. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. Along with Sebastian, we talked with Armando Mastracci, the owner and founder of Exert. While that system's approach is very different from Inside, the two tools are similar in that each uses on-the-road data to analyze a rider's physiology with remarkable accuracy. Armando talks about this balance of anaerobic and aerobic power. Finally, we'll touch base with coach Neil Henderson and mountain bike and gravel legend Rebecca Rush to get their thoughts on BLA Max and how the type of rider you are can influence how you view it. So, put on your nerd cap and your patience pants. Let's make you fast. We don't normally do plugs on Fast Talk, but when we see something this crazy, especially by a fellow Torontonian, 
we have to give it its due credit. Last weekend, Canadian hour record holder Ed Veal rode 24 hours on the Forest City Velodrome in Canada to raise money for its much-needed repairs. At 138 meters, it's the shortest permanent velodrome in the world. So that meant Ed completed 5,249 laps, or 735.8 kilometers. We'd ask him how it went, but we're pretty sure he's stuck in his house, walking in counterclockwise circles, unable to get to the door. So far, Ed has raised over $50,000. He's still taking donations at GoFundMe.com slash the-real-deal-attacks-fcv for Forest City Velodrome. We hope you can show your support. So Sebastian has, has driven up from Colorado Springs to uh, to join us. He just spent the weekend at the UFSAC um, coaching summit. I was actually down there and he was kind enough to invite me to this whole day presentation he did on Monday that covered what we're basically about to talk about today is a very shortened version of what he covered yesterday. That, that was a lot of fun. But I have to say, uh, sitting in on this presentation, there was a certain point where he put up on the board the difference between efficiency and economy. And if any of you actually suffered through the podcast where I spent an hour ranting about they're not the same and so many researchers get it wrong, it was great to see him put up on the board and it was possibly the best diagram I've ever seen explaining the difference. Later on, uh, he put up this graph that he said is one of his all-time favorite graphs. And I'm embarrassed to say I looked at it. I didn't recognize it right away. But I almost put my hand up and said, have you ever read this? There's this 1980s study out of Syracuse, New York. And then he goes to the next slide and I went, Oh, same study. And it's one of my all-time favorites. We certainly have some some things that we both share here. I think if you tell everybody they need to wear knee warmers, I might have to propose to you at some point during this podcast. But um, That's weird. <laughs> sorry. Okay, I, went to, I took a horrible turn with that. But anyway, be ready for this one because you might hear some science geeking going on. I know there's already some things that we're, we're going to argue a little on. Uh, which will probably be a, a little bit fun. And we're probably going to be needing to rely on Chris to, to stop us and, and keep us on track of it here. But Yeah, you uh, won't hear my voice much today, I don't think, unless I'm just breaking you guys up from punching or blowing with words, making blows with words. I'm a moderator today, mostly, because a lot of the science is pretty deep. There will be a payoff at the end. I think we should state that, that we're, we'll probably go pretty deep to begin with, but at the end, it's going to apply to... You out there listening specifically, um, we'll try to get some of that practical take-home advice so all of this is worth it. So let's start by talking a little bit with Sebastian about what he, uh, what he focuses on, which is understanding what's going on physiologically in our bodies. There is a, an obsession by some people of a focus on FTP, 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 and we want to go beyond that. What we really want to do is help people understand what FTP is, but then go beyond that and help people understand where, what is the foundation beyond that. Is that, do I have that right, Sebastian? Why don't you jump in here and, and take it away? Well, I, I'm not so aware maybe of the U.S. culture in terms of FTP, but I know that it's a very, very popular term maybe more becoming a buzzword, yeah. right? And I mean, I think for me, the first thing to remember is that it's actually like a substitute. It has, you know, it has becoming a substitute initially 
for the lack of ability to measure anaerobic threshold or determine anaerobic threshold precisely. And this is, I mean, this is where the name comes from, right? It's called like functional threshold power. So it indicates already that as a substitute, if you right. don't have access to a lab or you don't have access to accurate measurements. It's so an estimate. It's an estimate. And I mean, you know, fair enough, you know, can be, you know, can be accurate enough for whatever you do. Maybe not for a virtual cyclist, but maybe for a recreational and metro cyclist, it can be accurate enough. But for me, that's not the point because the point is that it's, it's, it's just vastly overrated. So it's not overall important, really. Like there, in terms of there's there's very rarely any scenario in a race where you will ride after your, even if it's correct or not, doesn't matter, at your FDP, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? And that's the same, by the way, goes for anaerobic threshold. The only reason why anaerobic threshold is very popular is not reason, but the only justification maybe why it's very popular is because, especially in running, that original or in origins from uh, is that. Your speed at a 10K, like a half marathon, a marathon, correlates to a certain extent with the speed at threshold. Mm -hmm. But just because it correlates doesn't mean it is the same. And more important, maybe, it doesn't tell you any of the mechanisms that is behind this correlation. Right. right. It's so, actually really good that you brought up runners because when you talk to runners, they don't really talk about thresholds. They'll talk about what's your 10K pace, pace. what's your 5K pace, yeah. what's your 1K and, pace, what's your you marathon pace. And you can take pace. it one step further. You know, you can, I bet, and you go out and you ask, I don't know, five, 10 cyclists, what approximately the FTP power is in terms of time. You will often hear things like ah, 20 minutes, up right. to an hour, 30 minutes, whatever. But based on that, very, very rough estimate doing a 20 minutes test. There's this mindset, FTP has something to do with 20 minutes, right? <laughs> and now, metabolically, what it means basically, threshold, what it should mean is the maximum lactate steady state. So the maximum intensity you can hold without accumulation of lactate. And if you now go to a running coach who coaches 10K runner, and the 10K runner maybe runs whatever, let's say 33 minutes, just to say something. And you look at the lactate concentration afterwards, it's easily 10, 15 whatsoever. Right. So and everybody knows in running that a 33 minute effort is far above or significant above threshold. And you ask a cyclist, a 15 or 30 minutes shorter effort, but that's threshold for sure. Uh, that doesn't fit at all. That's a, mm -hmm. there's a clear disconnect. So what are those components that you're talking about that are the, are underlying what the FTP is trying to estimate? Well, I mean, we can chat about the components for sure, but maybe we should, we should also step one step backwards and say, we should firstly ask uh, that question, not only what is the threshold power, and I don't know if it's 10 watts more accurate or whatsoever, fair enough. It's more important to understand, like, like I say, uh, what does really create the threshold? Like I say, why does it even exist? Because what is very funny, especially in the coaching business these days, is that everybody knows the term FTP and everybody will sell your training program to increase FTP power. At least that's what they're claiming, right? Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about the coaching business is that everybody buys into that. And you can buy a training program for 100 bucks or 200 or 500 bucks per month. I don't know whatsoever. Fair enough. To increase your threshold power. But I would say without no offense that 90% of the coaches trying to increase something they don't understand. And that's something very unique to the coaching business. Because if, when I go to a doctor because I have pain, I'm injured, I expect that the doctor knows why he prescribes me a certain treatment or a certain medicine. I would not like to take any medicine without the guy knowing the mechanism how this medicine actually works, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing as my car breaks down, I go to a garage, I need to get it fixed. 
I just don't buy any spare parts for the for the my car if if the guy in there doesn't understand the mechanics why the spare parts fix what is broken. In coaching, it's like yeah, my experience is like yeah, you should do longer rides or sweet spot or paradise training uh, or polarized training or whatsoever to out of experience hopefully get maybe your threshold power somewhat up, but without really understanding the mechanism behind it. Right. So this gets back to what we were talking about before, which is that FTP has kind of become this buzz phrase and everybody goes, well, I need to get my FTP higher. And then you go on the group rides and everybody's going, well, my FTP is 330 so I can kick your butt. But it's as you said, nobody's saying, well, what does that mean metabolically? What's going yeah. on in your body? Yeah, I mean, and what I really like that you brought up yesterday is if you're riding at 400, if you've got two riders riding at 400 watts and even if you say that is their threshold, whether you want to call it FTP or MLSS or A. T or, you know, I actually wrote an article where we looked at thresholds and because I'm a nerd, I, I looked at how many different definitions there were and I came up with over 25, which is ridiculous. Just because you have two people riding at 400 watts and that, let's say, is their threshold, it doesn't mean that the, the same thing's going on metabolically. It doesn't mean that the energy is coming from the same sources. And that's a really interesting point you brought up yesterday. Yeah, so that's the first step. So you have, you have to take, so to speak. The first step is you have to take that whatever your threshold power is, 300 watts, 400 watts, 400 watts sounds pretty high, but still, whatever it is. Yeah, shouldn't put uh, <laughs> There are some people, right? Whatever it is, it's, it's created differently. And when, once you understand that, you will start to understand that you have to train differently. And that is something that inherently everybody knows that if I put two people to the same training program, even though they maybe have the same threshold power, the outcome can be vastly different. And that is because what they bring to the table in terms of metabolic profile, so to speak, is vastly different. So it's important to understand, or the key to really know how to improve your threshold power starts with understanding how it is created. If you go back to the, to the, to the first definition of, so to speak, threshold being maximum lactate steady state, it basically says... Which is an old term. Which is an old term, but this is how it all started, right, historically, is that saying this is a maximum intensity, so... In running, it was only running speed. and cycling, it's mechanical power output. It's a maximum intensity somebody can sustain without lactate accumulating. Okay, that's a certain threshold, how much it can accumulate, like tolerance, but that's the general understanding. And for that given reason, it is valid to say that it is really a threshold because something changes. Right. Below that power output or intensity, there's no lactate accumulating. Lactate will come to a steady state. And above that, there's a constant, time linear accumulation of lactate. So there is really that kind of threshold that exists. Right. And we've talked about this before, that if you put somebody on a, a ramp test in a, a lab, there's these two physiological breakpoints, which usually in the labs they'll, they'll call VT1 and VT2. And VT2 is, is pretty similar to your maximal lactate steady state or your threshold. It's getting at the same idea. And it's this, there are two breakpoints where something fundamentally is changing in you metabolically. And that VT2 point is the place at which your body is producing more than it can metabolize or reuptake in terms of lactate. Well, the VT, I mean, the V and VT comes from, from ventilation. And there is a link, there's a connect between ventilation and lactate accumulation. If you've been there two days earlier in the USAC summit, you have a presentation on uh, glycolytic metabolism in, 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 in juniors or in, um, in young athletes. And for example, what I'm trying to go here is that the ventilatory response you get from a lactate accumulation can be different in different people. VT2 is statistically correlated with maximum lactate steady state, but because there's no other mechanics involved from going to lactate accumulation to ventilatory answers or responses, it's not quite the same. So this was meant to be the simple part of the explanation. We've already gone into multiple thresholds, how they're slightly different, and uh, right. I think I've already confused myself. But well, so, well, I mean, I mean, you know... 
I think it's easier if you stick to one system. If you look at power output to the muscle, why don't we, why, why, why do we want to make it more complicated than it is and jump up to, you know, jump up half a meter to the mouse and see what we measure there? Why don't we just stick to the, to the metabolites that come out of some working muscle itself? So, so what you're saying in a sense is that FTP, if somebody has an FTP of 300, a certain portion of that figure is produced with one energy system and a certain percentage of the figure is produced by another energy system, but you don't really, you don't have any of that information, that underlying information of well, what the proportions are in FTP, well, whereas you do in, in other ways. Well, my, my analogy here is like, think about your FTP power as your balance on your bank account, right? It can be 1K, it can be 2K at whatever given time, but how you get there in terms of how much money you get in and how much money you spend can be vastly different between two people, right? We can have the same balance on the bank account, but how we get there can be totally different. Sure. And that's what it is. So your maximum lactate steady state, your FTP power, whatever term you want to use here now, let's just simplify it and come call it threshold, okay? sure. whatever. Yep. Um, so your threshold power, so to speak, is the result of a certain lactate production, mm-hmm. right? Lactate is produced in the muscles, in the anaerobic or more precisely glycolytic metabolism. And obviously, as you know, from riding easy between intervals, you can burn lactate, right? And this is burned in the aerobic metabolism. So the question that you need to answer or what defines your power at threshold is the balance between the lactate production and the lactate combustion. And that's all what it is. And Similar to my analogy from, you know, about the bank account on your balance on your, on your bank account, it can be vastly different how mm-hmm. you come up with the same number. So going back to, to the initial one, two, two, two riders have 400 watts, 400 watts threshold power. Their aerobic power or their, you know, how highly they've trained their aerobic system and how good developed their glycolytic system is. So lactate production and lactate clearance or combustion, if you want to take it this way, can be vastly different. Mm-hmm. So just to, to, to give the, the really high-level summary of this is everybody's heard you, you have anaerobic energy and you have aerobic energy. So anaerobic energy is produced through glycolysis, and it produces lactate. If you're just doing work anaerobically, you're going to produce a lot of lactate. Aerobic work, that's your, your Krebs cycle, OxFos, electron transport chain, and let's, let's get away from high school uh, <laughs> physiology here. It is a consumer of lactate. Exactly. So your your slow twitch muscle fibers, which work very aerobically, they actually take up lactate from the blood and use it as a fuel. So this is what he's talking about when he's saying consumption versus production. If you're using a lot of these big anaerobic fibers, you're pumping a lot of lactate into the blood. If you're using a lot of your, your slow twitch muscle fibers, you're actually going to be sucking up a lot of that lactate. And what's really cool is you found that there's a, a rate of production and a rate of consumption and, and kind of the magical point is when they're in balance, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, the credits for that, but it's not, if you think about it and if you look at your whatever, just normal conventional lab test, so to speak, using a metabolic heart, you can see that the oxygen consumption goes up more or less linear with power output, right? So you look, just looking at that, you can understand that well, as you just said, if we agree on that lactate gets combusted, get cleared in the aerobic system, as I, as I said, thinking about the recovery in between two intervals, why you're doing that? Why you keep moving? Right? Why between two intervals you're not just laying flat down on the floor and wait? It's because you know you need, keep, you need to keep moving in order to combust that lactate. Inherently, every athlete, even without a coach, knows that he needs to keep moving. He needs to keep his aerobic engine running in order to combust lactate. You can just look at your normal REM test from a lab and look at the VO2 and you see, oh yeah, the higher, the harder I go, 
the more oxygen I will take up, so the more lactate I could potentially burn. So that's one part of the story. And then the other part of the story, that's a little bit more difficult to measure, is what is your rate of lactate production actually? And those two, sooner or later, so to speak, the lactate production will catch up with the ability to combust lactate, and there you have your threshold. All right, so now we understand that there is this this crossing point of these two components, let's call them. Let's dive a little deeper into that, Sebastian. Threshold is composed by the lactate production and the lactate combustion. And now the next level question would be, what drives, what determines how much lactate is produced and how much it can combust? This is determined by the maximum power or production rate of the glycolytic system and the aerobic system. And there is a very popular term has been around for decades for the uh, for your uh, aerobic power, so to speak, for your maximum aerobic energy production, which is called the VO2max. Right? Mm-hmm. So v, is a, v is a dot on top of it, which means flow over time, so it's a flux rate. O2 for oxygen at max for maximum, maximum oxygen uptake. And this is a valid marker for your aerobic power because we know that with each molecule, with each piece of oxygen that goes into the muscle, we produce energy in the aerobic system. And the counterpart for that, so to speak, is the maximum lactate production rate, which is called VLA max. And pretty easy to understand, I guess. What it is is that the stronger one system is, the more dominant it will be in sub-maximum and therefore endurance exercise. So if your aerobic power, if your VO2max is higher, then it will be more dominant in any sub-maximum exercise conditions, like threshold-based training, whatever it is, right? So you're doing a lot more aerobic versus... You're doing versus more, yeah. If your VO2max is higher, it allows you to cover more of the needed power, most needed energy in the aerobic pathway. And if your VLMX is higher, then this, you know, so to speak, pushes in the forefront of things and becomes more dominant. Mm-hmm. So the higher your VLMX is, the higher your lactate production will be at any given intensity. And therefore... You have to imagine lactate production goes up like curve linear, like exponential. Uh, so therefore, long story short, the higher the VLMX, the higher lactate production is, is, is in endurance exercise, and therefore the lower your threshold powers. Right, because that cross point is going to happen lower. Right, yeah. That. I always say, like, my, my analogy here is, like, think about a flat stage in the Tour de France. Uh, you have a breakaway group, and you have the peloton versus sprinters, and the breakaway group covers more or less linear, more distance, so they go steady speed. And then the peloton, you know, keeps it easy in the beginning and then speed up and sooner or later they catch them, so to speak. To, to simplify this again, the way to think of this, and you, you used this great analogy yesterday, is a sprinter is going to have a great VLA max. So they can hit these really high lactates, which is really good for the last 200 meters because you want a whole lot of glycolysis happening as a sprinter. You want to put out that big power. It's, they're not so great in a, a time trial. No, it can't be. Right. And, and that's kind of the issue you're getting at is if you have a high VLA max, you might be a good sprinter, but your time trial is going to suffer. And if you want to be a good time trialer, you got to bring that VLA max down so you're not going to be winning the sprints. And it seems like there's no magic bullet of you can have both. No, there's a very small margin when you talk about mentioned lactate shuttling in between the muscle fibers. And so there are, there, are, there are very small margins that you can, you can be a little bit better time trialist as a sprinter, or you can be a little bit better sprinter as a time trialist, but you can't have, have both at the same time, so to speak. That's, yeah, physically, so to speak, impossible. Predetermined okay. by genetics. 
kind of predetermined by genetics because your um, because your muscle fiber distribution is uh, a little bit determined by genetics, or you cannot change it a whole lot. But you can also change it over a long course of time. We, for example, we have a rider in um, you know at Team Bora where. We have data on his glycolytic system with VLMX um, from now dating like 11, 12 years back. And we can see how it changes over his career. And we can also see his anaerobic power or power in breakaways and power in attacks, uh, how this relates to that. So there is, you can, you can change it um, over a long time. You, you will not make a pure sprinter into a pure climber. Like sure. Right. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Yeah. And we're, I think the exciting part that I'm really looking forward to is what you're talking about with the training, because the, the whole message that we're trying to communicate here is you might have two riders with the same FTP, but let's say one has a really high VLA max and the other one has a much lower VLA max. That's going to have a big impact on how you train them. It changes everything about your training. And it should change a lot about how they ride and what they focus on as a rider. Potentially. Yes, if it, it changes, yeah, it determines what you will be good at in terms of races. It changes how you should train to increase your threshold power, if this is even a valid goal. And it changes even more, it cha because it also changes your fuel combustion, and therefore it may change your, your nutrition and a lot mm -hmm. of things, right? Mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things, you know, so to speak. There's a cascade uh, of things. There's a cascade of things that ha what is, is this is influencing, yes. right? So diet high carb, low carb, is it better suited for you? There's a lot of things which you can start to read out of that. I had a chance to catch up with Armando Mastrasi, the owner and creator of the Exert Training System software. Well, Armando took a very different approach with his software than Sebastian. The thing that Exert and Inside have in common is they use on-the-road data to calculate key physiological variables. Exert has an analog to VLA Max called High Intensity Power. So I asked if Armando has seen a similar balancing act between his high-intensity power and aerobic power. We just talked with Sebastian about this concept of, of VLA max, which is your, your maximal rate of, of lactate production, and VO2 max. And he had this very interesting point that you can't really maximize both. So you think of a time trial or a really good ability to time trial, it's going to come at a cost of that that VLA max. So your your sprint is not going to necessarily be as good. Likewise, if you're a sprinter and really want to maximize your sprint, it's going to come at a bit of a cost of that aerobic side. So you're going to sacrifice some of your time trial. I know you don't exactly have VLA max and, and VO2 max in your software, but do you see... I think you have a, have some. You look at threshold, and you look at what you call high intensity power. Do you see a similar relationship where, if you really want to maximize one, it comes at a cost of the other, or, or what do you see? So, in, in exert, we actually uh, keep track of the the what we call your your strain or your exercise, and we allocate these actually into different buckets. So we do have a bucket and we track for, for example, how much strain are you putting on your high intensity energy system and how much strain are you putting on your, your threshold system, which would be kind of analogous to the VLA max and the VO2 max in that scenario. And, and, and when we track this information in separate, uh, separately, we actually see that they don't train at the same rate. They don't benefit at the same rate. And so what that translates to is that if you're really looking to maximize your, let's say, your threshold power or your, your aerobic capacity, 
that requires a certain amount of training and it kind of builds in a certain way. And the same thing goes with your high intensity energy. That kind of builds in its own way. And they have different, in our system, they have different time constants. So they take longer or shorter. And so you can, you can train both simultaneously, but you can't optimize both at the same time because they require different type of training and the, and the response to that training takes longer for your threshold of power, for example, in comparison, in comparison to your high intensity energy. So, so yes, you can you actually train them at the same time, but in terms of optimizing either one or the other, then that's going to require a, a different focus and a, and a different type of training in order to get the best result. So you're basically saying if you want to be a time trialer, you can still improve your sprint, but you you still need to f- pick that focus of saying I really I, I really want to emphasize my time trialing skills. And the same thing for a sprinter. A sprinter might be able to improve their time trial but they really need to focus in on their, their sprint ability. Is that kind of what you're saying? Precisely. But what, one thing that you, that's interesting to note, though, is that you can't work on your sprint without working on your threshold because they kind of build upon each other. So in some ways, they are very closely related. But yes, you know, to improve your sprint power, improve your one-minute power, for example, you want to be focusing on, on your one-minute effort. Right. And when you do so, you can maximize your one minute effort, but that might come at a cost to your threshold power. Depending upon how, what level you've reached with your threshold power, you might see a little bit of a trade off in, in focusing your training on sprinting. You might see a little bit of a trade off with your threshold power and vice versa. You're a time trialist. If you're going to focus all your efforts on time trialing, you may see your sprint power start to deteriorate as a result. Let's get back to Sebastian and how he determines VLA max in an athlete. Okay, so knowing all of that about how exciting that could be in terms of influencing the the, the type of rider you are or want to be, the type of training you do, how do you determine these things? How do you determine VLA max and VO2 max? And can it be done out on the road? Well, determining VO2 max, I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? That's kind of simple. I've been doing this in the lab for I don't know, decades, right? You, you know, attach yourself to a metabolic car to be a tool analyzer and that's how you, how you go. And then VLMX, you know, it's a little bit different animal here, so to speak, right? So with VLMX, we developed or, you know, I was in a group developing uh, a, a lab test for that and it was validated um, using muscle biopsies and it's very, very solid, very reliable. But in the past, it, it still recovered lab testing. And by the way, this kind of method and that's looking at things and being able to to measure these things is, by the way, what brought me personally into into the position of coaching at the highest level of the sport. Because obviously, anaerobic power, glycolytic power, more precisely, is can be very decisive in cycling. And being able to quantify that and monitor it through training and change it by training is very powerful. Um, these days now, um, you don't need to do it necessarily in the lab anymore, right? So so we have, uh, for example, Team Lotto Jumbo um, and Team Bora who are just using pretty simple field tests um, to determine these things. And they don't even need to interrupt their training by, you know, dedicated set testing sessions, but they can just use um, training data, right? They just do some lactate testing um, during the normal training routine mm-hmm. and can run these things into the software. And the software calculates very reliable the VLMX for them and the VO2 max. 
So we were talking beforehand, you were a little concerned about the term MLSS because the original test for MLSS, to give you an idea of how miserable this is, is you first do a ramp test to figure out approximately where your threshold is. And then you do a series of 30 minute time trials over like the course of a week. Wattages kind of five watts below, five watts above or right at what we approximate your threshold at and see your lactate response. Eventually, one of them is going to be pretty spot on, hopefully, with your MLSS, you hope. Who wants to go through that every month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not feasible. And then, then even you run into the problem that, you know, you have some day-to-day -day variations. And, uh, I mean, 5 watts is something that seems to be more or less impossible. And even 10 watts, determining by 10 watts is the tolerance of that is something that's in the course of one week. It's, it's, it's super difficult, right? And we have done that. I mean, I've been there... Um, 16, 17 years ago, uh, validating uh, some of the stuff we were doing, for example, this, this, this VLMX uh, test in the lab and stuff. The good thing was our predictions were pretty precise, and therefore you didn't, we wouldn't have to come back for a full week, but only like we had like one power output M at uh, MLSS and then the next one above, and so we, it was determined. But yeah, in general, it's not very feasible. It's not, it's, it's not, you can apply it. You, you can't apply it to, to like coaching and especially not to coaching at world tour level, right? You have to come up with something that is, that is practical and especially repeatable because, because the whole story is that you need to be able to monitor the development of VOTOMAX and VLMAX as often and as precise as possible. And therefore, MLS tests over the course of one week doesn't really work. So you, you mentioned earlier that riders are getting, are, taking their their data from rides and throwing it into the software and it's spitting out the the numbers is there a story there that is worth telling in terms of how it does that or is it just a complex math going on <laughs> behind the scenes well i mean yeah it is very complex math and this is maybe why it's only out now recently like i said the 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 terms the measurements have been there more than a decade ago, um, we have been using things like VLMX since, as I said, since high road times, HTC times, taking example, Tony Martin. When Tony Martin turned professional in 2008, we have measured his VLMX and we knew that it was approximately 35 to 30% too high for being good, good time trialers. And so what you can do now, you can calculate what would be his threshold power if he drops it by 30%. And there you see the potential, how much more power he can get up. Uh, up to for a time trial and then it's pretty pretty simple math to come up how fast he can go and then you assign this guy and if we did this with a lot of other riders you know um, scouting young talent bringing it back to these days and and into the software it is not as simple that you just throw in any kind of training data into the software right it still has to be a dedicated data set that follows some rules right so you cannot just make up for example mix up for example Climbing data out of the saddle with riding in the flat in the saddle. This is not how it works because mm -hmm. this is not accurate enough, right? With this, you cannot do a very precise physiological assessment. On the other hand, the algorithms are versatile enough to not limit to you to one specific protocol, but allowing you a kind of freedom to say, I can use whatever, eight minute effort, four minute effort, one minute effort, two five minute efforts whatsoever and use a power output. And for example, like the Volto teams are doing it, uh, using some simple lactate measurements after that, which the coach or the sport director can do out on the road sure. and run this into the software. So I got to say, it was actually fun at the, the end of your, or towards the end of your, your presentation yesterday, you had us actually put data into the software. And then we, we mapped the VLA max. We, we mapped, you know, all these things we've been talking about today to determine what is this person's threshold. 
And then you had us play with their VLA Max and, and VO2 Max to see what we could do to the threshold. And I very quickly got this athlete from 280 watts up to 400 watts. And everybody's like, whoa, so, so how do you train that? I'm like, no, I'm just handing this graph to my athlete and say, do this. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> Just just move your VLA max like this. Okay, pay me for my coaching. <laughs> so, but maybe we should get into how do you train this? You also mentioned yesterday that, well, VO2 max is trainable. It's fairly slow moving. VLA max can actually be, be raised and lowered quite rapidly and quite a lot over the course of the season. So you brought up the, this whole idea of a lot of the training is about either bringing your VLA max down or bringing it up. So maybe we should we should head in that direction now. Yeah, I mean the training of VO2 max and VLA max is quite different, and it's I think again it's if you if you look at it it's pretty easy to understand because you have as you already mentioned you have different muscle fiber types involved, and then the VO2 max in terms of a muscle muscular level is happening in the mitochondria, right? It's a one part of the muscle cell. Mitochondria even partly has its own genome, so it has its own, its own genes, its own uh, signaling processes. And glycolysis is happening in the cytosol, so outside the mitochondria. Yeah. So you can easily understand that it's it's two different systems, right? It's not happening at the same place. I wouldn't necessarily say that in general VLA max you can change quite a bit up and down. I would differentiate between a quick change, which can be, for example, induced by just a change, a drastic change of nutrition, right? Going super, super low carb will change that, but it's not there to stay. Like if you really want to say, like, you want to name it this way, a structural change, then VLMX change is actually taking much, much longer than a change of VO2max. Um, VO2max on a muscular level, mitochondrial protein has like a half-life time of like two to three weeks. So you can turn it around quite quick. You can uh, apply a very, very heavy load that helps, um, you know, destroying a lot of mitochondria. Uh, so you're losing VO2max. But to really bring it up constantly and consistent and a robust increase of VO2max, I mean, this is your you know, consistent training, so to speak, right? So this is where yeah. your consistent training over the years kicks in, so to speak. Yeah, but the, so the one thing I am going to say to that, though, and again, please please correct me, but when you're dealing with a glycolysis, as you said, this is in the cytosol, and it's entirely a enzymatic process. So to a degree, just it can be changed by, by RNA expression. And certainly if you want to change it long term, probably just some epi epigenetic changes. Um, when you're talking about VO2 max, um, you're talking about mitochondrial density. You're talking about vascularization. You're talking about a lot of things that are structural. Whenever you're dealing with something structural, that's going to take longer for big changes than something that's purely enzymatic. Right. So there is a bit more opportunity to change VLA max quicker than you're going to change VO2 max. Beside one thing, uh, VLA max is highly linked to your muscle fiber distribution. Fair. And there you go to a point where you can't change it quickly anymore. Structure. No, that's possibly one of the slowest things to change, <laughs> actually, because the there's still a debate so of whether you can change fibers. Exactly. So that's why I say there's a quick change to it, especially in Jews, like you say, on an enzymatic level, um, you know, taking away the fuel for the enzymes, using them less, you have a good good chance of detraining, de-adaptation on a structural level. It will take a lot of time because ultimately you will you are facing the issue to make your fast switch glycolytic fibers into fast switch oxidative fibers so to speak and this can this can require some time okay and chris this is where you're supposed to say I, hey science nerds yeah I'm, I'm i hope no one out there is drowning at this point let's bring it back up to the surface i'm a time trialist rider rider x is it no i'm not me i'm not i'm a bad time trialist actually um no rider x out there is a time trialist what system should he be focused on influencing and how does he go about doing that? 
in order to, to understand what you need to train for for a time trial, you first need to start understanding the effort. And so the first question would be, how long is the time trial, so to speak? Or are we talking more about the long time trial, like world championships, one hour? Or are we talking more about the 20 minutes, 50 minutes, one? Because a one-hour effort, you're riding close to threshold. You're not riding at threshold. That's another story, maybe. But um, a shorter one, you're riding close like, to threshold. But you might have some corners and some acceleration. So there are a lot of times where you ride above threshold. But I think what's important to understand that that there's a sweet spot, so to speak, for your VLMX. There's an optimum range. And that's quite different to the VO2 max. VO2 max is very straightforward. The higher, the better, right? It's only one thing better than a big engine, an even better, bigger engine. That's what it is. <laughs> so VO2 max as high as possible for your time trial guide. And then VLMX as low as possible, but as high as needed. Mm. So balancing act. Balancing act, exactly. And this is true also for the road sprinter, because don't forget that your Tour de France sprinter is not only sprinting, but he has to complete the Tour de France and maybe 200k right. before it comes to the actual sprint. It's also balancing act just on a higher level, mm-hmm. right? Talking about VLMX. Uh, and to give you the scope of that, how important or the magnitude of VLMX, how important that is, if you think about VO2max, what is the difference in your Tour de France sprinter versus your Tour de France GC rider slash winner? What is the difference in VO2max? Talking about per kilogram, five milliliters. Talking about like not even 10%. What is the difference in VLMX? It's threefold. 300% between those two metrics, right? So there is a lot of room for changes in VLMX and this very, very significant influence on your endurance performance. So if somebody was going to focus on time traveling and they came in, they, 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 were, you, they went through your system and found that they had a, a very high VLA max, what would they want to do in order to get that VLA max down? What sort of training would they want to do? Right. So if you want to get down your, your VLMX by training, the mechanism that you need to understand is you need to target your FT fibers. You need to target these muscle fibers, which actually accountable for producing uh, a lot of lactate. Fast twitch fibers. More like the fast twitch fibers, yeah. exactly. And those have a higher, a higher um, recruitment threshold compared to the ST fibers. So you need to incorporate some training at threshold or slightly below threshold. You can do a little hack, so to speak, by increasing the torque, so lowering the RPM, which will, because it's a higher force, trigger more FT fibers, even though you're riding sub-threshold. And then you have to do this kind of things repeatedly, because this is what endurance training is about, and this is how you change your muscle fibers or train in general. You have consistency. You have consistency. A typical thing, and again, this is where the science links back to your, links back to a lot of us people see in the real world, if you do a lot of kind of what may be called sweet spot or sub-threshold intervals, you may be able to increase your threshold power compared to your maximum aerobic power or VO2max. And this is a mechanism. The mechanism is partly decreasing your, your VLMX, right? So this kind of training two, three, four times a week, um, again and again and again, hitting your muscle fibers with sub-threshold work at a lower RPM, um, to, to, yeah, to, to increase the effect a little bit. Um, this is kind of the standard repertoire of training methods for, I guess, the most time trial coaches out there. Is there a, a real world example you can use to explain? You talked about 
seeing Tony Martin's data early on and that he was 35% above where you wanted him to be, how did you get him to where he is when he was world champion three years in a row or four, year, four years in a row? I can't. Not in a row, unfortunately. But well, four times. Yeah. Four times, four times yeah. total. Yeah. Is that a good, is there a helpful story for listeners out there or is that too... Well, I mean, for Tony Martin, the, one of the main secrets to success, very, very simple, without, without going too much into, into the science here, consistency. Mm-hmm. Tony Martin is one of the most consistent athletes when it comes to, when it comes to training. This obviously helps with reducing VLMX as it does with improving VO2 max. That really, really helps for him, um, to have a very, very high VO2 max. So very high aerobic power. And, and then specifically reducing VLMX, coming back to that story, yeah, when he, when he signed on for the team, when he turned professional actually in 2008, his VLMX was a little bit higher, 30, 35% higher than what you would want it to be for world-class time trial performance. And then again, you can actually, you can pretty easily calculate the additional threshold power, TT power you would see for half an hour, an hour time trial. And his training incorporated, you know, similar training what we just talked about, regular training, Subthreshold, often done in the climbs with slightly um, decreased RPM, so higher torque, higher force. And then we would switch, you know, we would, we would vary that in different durations. Um, we would actually start doing this on the time trial bike, so doing 60 RPMs at whatever 400 watts on the TT bike in order to bring this number down in a very, very specific kind of, of training. And then you can look at this, you know, at this development and, you know, he became two, two, three times. I think he ended up on the podium of the world championships in 2011. I think it was when he claimed his, his first title. So you can see this step by step progression. If you look at the results and if I look at the power output, you can see his steps are like 10, 20 watts every year until he, uh, until he arrives where, where he is. All right. So on the flip side, if you're a sprinter, you, you feel like you've got that finishing speed and you come in, you plug all your numbers into, into inside and that VLA max number is particularly low. What's the, what's the opposite? How do you bring that number up to where it, it is in that range that you want to see? Right. So, yeah. So, so if your goal is to increase VLA max uh, or glycolytic power to uh, bring it back this way, in road cycling, one of the first fundamentals which you have to take care of is to don't do anything in training that decreases it. So that's, that, that might sound too simple, but that's really the, the, the first part to look at. Uh, I'll give you that example. The final stage of the Tour de France, the, the, the sprint on the Champs-Élysées, the power output is significantly lower than it is in the first week because you have put those sprinters through three weeks, a lot of climbing, a lot of sub-threshold, never glycogen replenished, uh, a lot of slightly lower RPM, so slightly higher torque, and this is a safe bet day in, day out to decrease your VLMX. So the first thing, you have to avoid these kind of things, right? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to try something specifically in training to increase your glycolytic power, but on the other hand, do some stuff which uh, which keeps it low. The set is avoid anything like the sweet spot threshold stuff. And then to actively increase it, two ways you can do it, uh, which work very, very well is a lot of gym training, squatting, bench pressing, uh, mimicking similar efforts, uh, especially in terms of power output. So it doesn't really help if you have a high force, slow movement and three seconds rest in between each repetition. So you need to have a similar effort, fast movement, um, high speeds, high power output in the gym. Um, and then you can replicate similar things out on the road, doing uh, sprints between 10 seconds and 30 seconds. 
this uh, this with a decent amount of rest in between uh, in between repetitions or series of repetitions, more precisely. Um, what's, a, what's a decent amount? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, let's say if you do, um, you know, this this gripal, I was using training programs to increase uh, to increase this VLM max with like sub-maximum split of 10 seconds alternating with 50 seconds rest. But then after a series of 10, he would have like half an hour easy, mm -hmm. right? And that was a safe bet to increase his uh, VLA max and sprint capacity before the Tour de France, for example. And if you go longer with a sprint, like even if you go from only from 10 seconds to 20 seconds, you might be better off tripling the, the recovery time, so to speak. But then you have to be very careful. So if you are in this example where you say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good sprinter, I just want to increase it. I want to get this edge on the VLA max, then this might work. If you apply this kind of training to your GCTT kind of athlete, you have to be aware that there's not really any energy metabolism that can provide the energies for, for those kind of short sprints. And what's actually happening, you're overloading your glycolytic system and you won't see a good direction uh, in terms of increasing VLA max there. So there's a very fine edge, so to speak. Mm. And what you want to do what you really want to do is you want to look at at which percentage of your VLA max, so to speak, what percentage of your VLA max do you actually use in the sprint exercise? Like similar, you would use a one repetition maximum in the gym, or people base their their training based on percentage of FTP or percentage of F, of VO2 max. You want to start using your basing your training a percentage of VLA max. Tony Martin's a good example on one side of things. Let's let's hear an example on the the flip side of that. Yeah, so if you if you go back to that the two extremes, so to speak, and we, we take a sprinter on the other hand, what you see in a sprinter during the course of one season, you see a, a decrease in VLA max, right? Because you have all those races, like I said, with the Tour de France, uh, it's like poison for your glycolytic system, right? It's a France for three consecutive weeks, uh, never glycolytic replenished. So for a sprinter, during the course of one season, you will easily see a decrease in VLA max. And so you often, or at least sometimes during the season, you have to, you know, kind of stop your, you know, your racing program, you have to interrupt your training, your, your racing program, have to go back kind of to the drawing board, prescribe maybe a totally different training than what will you, what you, you would normally do mm -hmm. uh, to bring up this number again. And we had tremendous success, especially last, lately with, uh, with Inside. If you look at Tim Bora and their sprint success this season, how they manage their athletes. And if you look at guys like, like Sam Bennett, for example, um, how he managed his sprint performance over a three-week stage race, uh, right? There's a lot more knowledge to that, that during the season, you need to monitor that because once you see VLMX decreasing, that's like a little bit like a pre-warning system because then you know a couple of weeks later your sprint power, you know, will fade away. Vanishes. Yeah, exactly. And so... That's what, you know, I did with Gripal uh, already some, some years ago. Uh, that might include going to, into the gym again in May. Um, and that's, for example, something very popular with, um, with, uh, with Team Bora. They go a lot to the gym. They do a mm. lot of gym work with their guys. And that also explains, for example, the increase of power output in the sprint. Like, if I go back to the early days of high road, you have been able to win a sprint in the Tour de France with like 1500 watts, 1600 maybe. Now these days, you're getting nowhere with that number because yeah, you, you need 18, 1900 watts to win that thing if you're an 80 kilogram sprinter, right? And this is much, much better understood. So I said, we, you know, um, Team Lotto Jumbo works with this inside and they have Dylan Groenewegen um, mm -hmm. on several stages of Tour de France this year. And I have this, you know, I had this story I was giving 
I was giving some education for their coaches in their in their service course in uh, in the Netherlands. And in the coffee break, we just chatted about, you know, the upcoming race season. It was in the wintertime someday, uh, upcoming season. And I chatted to the, to the coach of Groenewegen, who was the former coach of Marcel Kittel. And he understands this concept very well. He used the kind of concept to train. He said, you know what? I heard a Greipel has to do the spring classics. And he was like cheering and said, fair enough, because when Greipel has to do the spring <laughs> classics, he's not going, he's not going to be able to bring up his glycolytic power in time to the Tour de France. There you go. And he can't survive the classics. So talking about the sweet spot. You can't survive and be successful in the classics. This is VLMX of a sprinter. Right? It blunts everything. Yeah, uh, you have to you have to lower it for the endurance part of things, and then you need to bring it up again for for the total farm. And Peter 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 Sagan is, a, is another example for that, right? You can see that you could tell now understanding thinking about it, you can tell that maybe his VLMX is a little bit lower compared to a Kittel or a Greipel or a Grunewagen because he's doing much much better during the corporate classics, but he still is changing it. Right? He still works on it. Like he started testing his VLMX at Cannondale times, and he still needs to work on it during the season and change it. We asked Neil Henderson, the owner of Apex Coaching, and Rebecca Rush, a professional ultra-endurance cyclist, their thoughts on VLA Max and whether a rider has to pick between a strong sprint or a strong time trial. What's your thought on VLA Max? Is this yeah. a valuable tool or, or gimmick? Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you think about lactate flux effectively is what that is, Absolutely massive. Lactate is not a, you know, evil byproduct. It is a fuel that the body is using. It is produced in different amounts depending on the intensity. And so your ability to actually both produce a high amount and then be able to clear that at a high rate actually is quite critical to success. So it's, you get that, you know, via looking at things in a little bit different way than we have some of the, our, our say, classic laboratory, you know, just a lactate profile or just a VO2 max, but uh, absolutely it's something that we've looked in different ways, different sports and lactate clearance curves after even like Wingate tests as an example of what happens. And it's that, that's the important thing of moving forward and understanding things like VLA max and the type of training that can impact that in the production and clearance side. That's really important. And, and how do you feel about his idea of Training should be somewhat designed. His, his coaching is a lot more complex than this, but he yeah. talked about training to lower your VLA max if you're more a time trial style rider versus training to actually raise your VLA max if you're a sprinter. Do you agree I, with that? Effectively, it's the specificity of, of what you're getting ready for. So you can't be great at all things. You need to be great at the things that matter the most and sometimes just not as bad at the things that don't matter most. So Rebecca, I'm not going to have her do a lot of the uh, standing start efforts or five second, you know, a lactate type of training since it's not super specific to anything she does. Um, but that 30 minute interval. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then the stuff that does matter. Negotiate with your coach. Get it down to two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but go harder. Go harder. It is yeah. amazing how I can race for 27 hours, but like a three minute interval just seems so long. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It's only 180 seconds. Yeah, that, that, I don't know what that says about you, Rebecca, but that is totally weird. <laughs> Let's get back to the show. All right, Sebastian, you're on the clock. I know you've been working on this stuff for the last 20 years of your life. <laughs> you've got one one minute to really help listeners out there understand what they can take away from this science and all the things that you've helped develop over the last few decades. So I would wish that the main takeaway for listeners is to start 
thinking about and hopefully understanding more about how the power that you see on your power meter, because every, these days everybody is on a power meter, how this power is actually composed. And understand that your, that your threshold power, for example, is not this one, you know, generic number that somehow comes up, but like with all other biological systems, there's a reason for that. And when you start to understand what causes a threshold, you can now effectively start to train and change the threshold power, just as you would do solving other problems in your life. Like I said, you're sick, your car broke down, whatever. You, you see somebody who's an expert who understands why this happens and how to fix it. And you should ask for the same quality of training prescription when it comes to increasing your power output on the bike. So my take home is, is numbers. And I think one of the themes here is that Numbers are meaningless if you don't understand what's behind them. And if you don't understand the number, it can take you really bad places. And that's always been one of my issues with FTP is that a lot of people throw that term around, throw that number around and don't understand at all what that means. And what I've really enjoyed about this is we went into the physiology of explaining, here's what's going on in the body. So my take home for everybody is, is you've created this tool based on 20 years of, of very validated research, and, and you've made a lot of really good points for it. So any of you out there who are thinking about, this sounds really cool, I want to check out what this is about, don't go into it and go, ooh, cool, more numbers. Instead, take the time, learn it understand it, understand what's going on so that I'm particularly talking to the coaches out there. You can use this very powerful tool to help your athletes and understand what's going on in them. My five seconds is thanks, Sebastian, for joining us today. <laughs> thanks for having me. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And when you're there, be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Sebastian Weber, Armando Mastracci, Neil Henderson, Rebecca Rush, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.